0: We face threats at every level, personally.
1: I was probably one
0: of ten or fifteen people just in our classrooms who got stuck. Communally.
1: Well, we can confirm a bomb blast in a Christian suburb. Nationally. All
0: civilian aircraft grounded from Los Angeles here to the East Coast. And globally. Bin Laden uh, have sought uh, nuclear materials and uh, bring on board uh, scientists who could help him devise an improvised nuclear device. There are severe threats to our security, but no amount of protection can guarantee us long-term safety if our relationship with God is not secure. The biggest threat faced by everyone is the danger of separation from God. Jesus Christ died for your sins to give you eternal life. When you accept His forgiveness and turn to Him, your eternal future is assured. The following briefing is not classified. It should be distributed to as many people as possible. Stand by for further instruction.
1: Let's open our Bibles then to Genesis chapter 16. In just two weeks, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In about two weeks after that, some will be standing right there in the garden tomb where Jesus, at one of the places is believed, rose from the dead in Jerusalem. In the year 632 A.D., on June 8th, the prophet for Islam, Muhammad, died and was buried in Medina, Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, visit his tomb every year, not celebrating a resurrection at all, but simply a life and a death. In fact, there was a Muslim who was speaking to a Christian many years ago, and they were having a conversation, and the Muslim said, look, we Muslims at least go to Medina, and we can look for a coffin. You Christians go to Jerusalem, and all you have is an empty grave. And the Christian smiled and said, "Uh, yeah, that's like the whole point. It's what separates Jesus from everyone else is that resurrection. It was E. Stanley Jones, the missionary to India, who went there to spread the gospel to the different faiths of that country. And he said this. He said, the Buddhist and the Hindu stand aside disillusioned. The Muslim submits, but only the Christian submits. Exults. In the next two weeks, we want to be looking at uh, Islam, the religion of Islam, and we want to look at two different sides of it. We want to look at the threat side of it, as well as the opportunity side. Now today, mostly the threat, and we have a limited space of time to do that. Even two weeks will barely scratch the surface. But we want to look at it this morning in terms of the threat. After all, the Department of Homeland Security was founded as a large part as a response to the threat of radical Islam against the United States. But we don't want to stop there. We then want to look at it as the great opportunity of our present day. After all, Jesus loves them. Jesus died on the cross for them. And we want to reach them as much as possible. So, in Genesis 16, we approach Islam and that topic through the life of Ishmael, the other son of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac, of course, but before he had Isaac, the son of promise, was born to he and his wife, Sarah, Ishmael, the other son. By the way, they had more sons than that, or Abraham did. He'll have six more sons when he has his second wife, Keturah. Now, I'm aware that not all Muslims will trace their ethnic lineage back to Ishmael. That I'm aware of. But all Muslims will trace their spiritual heritage back to Abraham through Ishmael. They regard him as a prophet. He is mentioned in the Quran. And I believe that Islam, the religion, has enabled the Arab peoples to see a fulfillment of some of the very predictions we're going to read about in this chapter. Where did the whole earthly hatred of Israel originate? What's up with that? Why has that rift been there for so long? And why is it that that part of the world, the Middle East, has placed the world on the brink of global war for so long? Where did that all begin? What is the agenda in that part of the world? And was any of it foreseen in the Scripture? So today we're going to look at chapter 16. We're going to look at Ishmael. We're going to first notice his nativity. That's his birth. We want to then notice his numbers that are predicted here. The name of Ishmael. And finally his nature. Those four elements. Let's go to the first three verses of our chapter and see how he came about. His nativity. Now, Sarai, that's Sarah's name before the name was changed. Abram's wife, of course, Abram was the name before it was given to him as Abraham. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So, Sarai said to Abram, See, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. Have you ever heard the old saying that goes like this, God helps those who help themselves? I remember my dad used to quote that, and he used to say, The Bible says God helps those who help themselves. Then I read the Bible, and I found out ain't in there. It's not in any version of the Bible. And uh, it's not, uh, Jesus never said it, the apostles, it's a phantom verse. You won't find it in the Bible unless you have a book called First Maybe it's in there, but it's not in the Bible. In fact, the Bible says God helps those who can't help themselves. That's what redemption is all about. But here's a case of Sarah and Abraham trying to help God out and help God fulfill His promise. Now, to be childless in those days was was a horrible place to be in any society. And God had promised this couple that they would have a child, and God made that promise 11 years before this chapter. 11 years. They've waited for a child. 11 years, no results. So I can only imagine the conversation when something like this, Abe, honey, I know you really want me to have a child, but come on, look at me. I'm 75 years old. Not going to happen. And So they come up with this plan. And as you go through this chapter, it's It's pretty easy to see that Abraham was not exactly a rock of Gibraltar when it comes to standing strong. He's very passive in this whole series of events. Again, I can only imagine what the conversation was like. Abraham looks at his wife, Sarah, and says, Okay, now let me understand you, Sarah. You want me to have sexual relations with your maid, and you're okay with that. And you believe that's God's will. Well, okay. You know, if you insist, somebody's got a sacrifice, I guess I'll do it. (laughs) Now understand the codes of the day made this legal to do. It was legal for a wife who couldn't bear a child to use a servant, a surrogate mother, to bear her child and give it the name of that couple. It was perfectly legal. But you should also know That what is legal isn't necessarily biblical. It's legal to divorce your spouse for irreconcilable differences. It's not biblical to do so. It's legal to have an abortion. It's not biblical to do so. It's legal to get drunk. It's not biblical to do so. So the issue isn't what the court allows, but it should be what God allows and what God wants. Well let's let's see what happens this whole plan backfires verse 4 so he went into hagar and she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived her mistress became despised in her eyes and sir so i said to abram my wrong be upon you <laughs> i gave my maid into your embrace And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. See how she's twisting this whole thing. The Lord judge between you and me. So now we have a wife, Sarah, who's very jealous, very angry, and blames the husband. So look at what Abram does, verse 6. So Abram said to Sarah, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. When Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So Abram's response is very passive Whoa, woman, back off. You handle this. Sort of the response of a lot of men well, I don't want to handle it. You handle it. So what happens is Sarai, it seems like, places Hagar back down from concubine status, which she once had, back down to slave status, which was again. According to the ancient codes, perfectly legal for her to do. Verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for a multitude. So now we see that though this woman Hagar is rejected by Sarai and Abram, she's not rejected by God. The angel of the Lord comes to comfort, to console, to direct to instruct The angel of the Lord, by the way, you've seen that phrase, have you not, throughout your reading of the Old Testament? This is the very first mention of this unique person called the angel of the Lord. Which brings rise to this question, who is the angel of the Lord? Now we're sort of divided on this. Some people say it's just some angel, some mega angel, perhaps Gabriel. That's what Muslims say. That's what others believe. And still others will believe, some commentators say, that this is a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Because the angel speaks first person as though God was speaking. I will do this, I will bless, I will do that. And so the angel speaks as though the angel were the Lord also The angel of the Lord appears throughout the Old Testament and all of those appearances suddenly stop after the birth of Christ. There is no more angel of the Lord after that. So we don't know, but it is a unique individual. Something to note. In Islam, angels are very important. There's a whole angelic hierarchy that exists and stretches from Allah to mankind The most important angel, of course, is Gabriel, because Gabriel, they say, is the one who gave the revelations to Muhammad the prophet for Islam. And then they'll also say that every single human being has two recording angels, they are called. And the recording angels keep a record of all the good and the bad, and that record is reviewed at the day of judgment. Look at verse 9 once again, and notice the language. The angel of the Lord said to her, "'Return to your mistress,' and submit yourself to her hand. That's a very key concept in Islam, submission. In fact, Islam means submission, and Muslim means one who submits. So the angel says, go submit. According to Muslim tradition, Hagar did not do that. I'll explain that in just a moment. Islamic tradition traces Islam as a religion back to Abraham. Now, this is their belief. They say, Abraham, our father, submitted to the will of Allah and gave us this religion. This is their quote. This is the religion of your father, Abraham. He called you Muslimin, or those who submit to the will of Allah. Okay, now, in their tradition, in Muslim tradition, Hagar did not return to Abraham and Sarah and submit. In their tradition, she fled and went down to Saudi Arabia. And according to their tradition, Abraham, following God, followed her down to Saudi Arabia. So according to the Muslims, there's Sarah left by herself. And Abraham and Hagar go down to Saudi Arabia with Ishmael. Further, they say, Abraham and his son Ishmael are the ones that built the Ka'aba, that big black stone, that box that is, um, they say, is the center of the universe and is in their grand mosque in Mecca. Look at verse 10. After the nativity is a prediction of the numbers that are to follow. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted as a multitude. Now most Arabs will trace their lineage back to Ishmael. Most, many if not most all. Today, in the Arab states, there's a population of 325 million Arabs. The the fulfillment is seen everywhere. 325 Arabs in those 22 countries that span two different continents. Now, most of those countries are under the banner of a religion called Islam. In fact, 20% of the world's population is Islam. It's the second largest religion in the world. 1.3 billion people. What that means to you and I is this. One out of every five people on planet Earth, one out of every five people on planet Earth are Muslim. And the numbers are growing, and they would like that to spread worldwide. Let me frame it for you in modern terms. In 1945, in England, there was one mosque. One mosque. Today there are thousands upon thousands, and hundreds of those mosques were churches that are now converted into mosques. In fact, the very church that sent out the missionary William Carey is now a mosque. In China, there are 100 million Muslims. In Indonesia, 180 million, all relating back spiritually to Ishmael. The United States of America has currently about 3,000 mosques. You know how many there were in our country just in 1990? 30 from 30 to now 3,000. And they say a new mosque opens every single week in the United States of America. An Islamic leader has already inaugurated a session of the United States Senate, praying in the name of Allah. Saudi Arabia and other countries pour in tens of millions of dollars a year to spread the faith of Islam around the United States in particular. You should know that. That's your oil dollars at work. In fact, the Muslim strategists often talk about this, saying, Why is it that Allah has blessed our country with all of the wealth of the oil of the world, if not for this reason? One imam, a clergyman in the Muslim faith in Dearborn, Michigan, said, quote, Just as you send Christian missionaries to sub-Sahara Africa, we are spreading our faith in America. And they claim 2,500 converts to Islam every day. That's what they claim. Look at verse 11. Let's consider his name for just a moment. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard Your affliction. The name Ishmael means the Lord will hear or the Lord will heed. And understand, this is a name, not that Hagar made up. She wasn't looking through a thousand and one baby names book. The angel of God gave her that name for the child. The angel named the child Ishmael. And Hagar named God and the place. Notice verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. And she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Barat, in case you ever want to find it. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, According to the Quran, Ishmael is a prophet and an apostle. And if you want to find that, it's in their book, the Quran, in Surah, chapter 19, verse 54. Surah is a chapter. There's 114 chapters or suras in that book. And in chapter 19, verse 54, it designates Ishmael as a prophet and an apostle. His name is mentioned 12 times in the Quran. Now, remember something. Abraham loved his son because it was his son. He didn't despise his son. He loved his son. In fact, so much did he love him that in the very next chapter, chapter 17, when God says, uh, Abraham, Sarah, I'm still going to give you a son. Miraculously, it's going to be Isaac. Abram says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Just fulfill your promise through him. Make it easy. And he loved him. Also, if we follow his story into Genesis chapter 25, we understand that Ishmael also has 12 sons. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Jacob. Ishmael has 12 sons that grow and populate that part of the world. And many Arabs today claim him as their ancestor. Now let's consider finally his nature as predicted by this angel of the Lord. Verse 12. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Now notice that last verse that we're considering is given in different phrases or strophes of description. The first describes him as fiercely independent. He will be a wild man. Literally in Hebrew, it's not adequately translated here, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. Now I want to quickly say that that is not intended as a slur, but as a compliment. It was a compliment because back in those days, one of the most respected animals was called the desert onager or the wild donkey. He didn't need anybody. He could live off the land. He was autonomous, mobile, fiercely independent. In fact, in the book of Job, God himself, in a few verses, uh, Job chapter 39 describes this wild donkey or onager as one of his prize creations. So it was a compliment. So here you have this animal, and a group of people, the sons of Ishmael, described as a wild donkey of a man, this revered animal that's very mobile and lives off the land. And if you follow the history of the sons of Ishmael, way back from the time of Abraham onward, is a group of people known as the Bedouins. The Bedouins live in tents. Ten percent of the population of the central Middle East is still Bedouin. They live in tents. They shun society in the, in the cities. They live off the land. They have animals. They migrate from place to place according to the rainfall patterns with their animals. And uh, they're a fascinating, very independent, wonderful group of people. I've sat in many uh, a Bedouin tent and uh, had long discussions with some of the sheikhs, some of the, the leaders of the household and of the tribe, And uh, it's fascinating. You go in these tents, and the men do all the important work. You know, they they have coffee all day long and talk about life. And the women do the little things like watering all the flocks, feeding all the flocks, and doing all the work in their culture. while the men discuss the heavy, important things of life. And uh, they'll give you coffee, cup after cup, and there's a ritual. They live very basically. I say that tongue-in-cheek because I've seen some Bedouin tents with television antennas poking out of the top. So it's just funny to see these tents in the wilderness. They're living off the land, but they think that one of the basic necessities is TV. I doubt they're watching American Idol. I don't know what they're watching, but you'll see a television in some of these tents. Look at the next phrase. A firm defiance is implied here. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. That's pretty easy to figure out what that means, but just in case you have any doubts, listen to the words of two of the foremost scholars of the Old Testament, Kyle and Delich, who, in taking this phrase and describing its meaning, they say these words describe the incessant state of feud or war with each other and with their neighbors. So these scholars say, here's what it means. The prediction is, here's a group of people that will be fighting each other and fighting their neighbors. And that's why I say Islam has enabled this people group to fulfill this particular passage. Not only do you have um, some of the radicals against the whole world, especially the West, but you have Sunnis fighting Shiites in very, very bloody conflicts. Which brings up this question. Is Islam a peaceful religion. I know there's a lot of spin doctors that would love to say nothing but peaceful things about it. It's because they have a vested interest in saying so. is Islam a peaceful religion? Well, if you go back to its origin, you find it's a very different picture than the spin doctors would have you believe in saying that it's a wonderful, peaceful religion. Here's a thumbnail sketch. Muhammad was born in A.D. 570 in the city of Mecca. Later on, he married a widow, a wealthy widow. His first wife, he had 11 more. But he married a wealthy widow, 15 years his senior, named Hadija. Because she had all the money, he had a lot of time on his hands. He got very contemplative, and he'd go out to the desert for days and then weeks and up to a month, thinking and contemplating. Well, in the year 610 A.D., on Mount Hira... In a cave, he purportedly for the first time got a revelation from God, really through the angel Gabriel. And the first time, according to him, the angel Gabriel told him to recite the name of God. By the way, Quran means a recital. You just recite in a dictation kind of a form what God is saying. So he was told, recite the name of Allah, the name of God. He didn't do it. He just listened. He was just sort of sitting there, unresponsive. The angel insisted and insisted, and finally, according to Muhammad, grabbed him by the throat and almost killed him until he recited the name of God. Subsequent revelations followed. So then afterwards, he went out to Mecca, and he started telling the people to turn away from polytheism, worshiping many gods, and worship Allah, one God. He warned of God's judgment to come on them. Well, they didn't receive that message very well. They persecuted him. He was forced to flee Mecca, and he went to a town which became known as Medina later on. But you should know this. When he got enough strength, enough armies, he forcefully, by the sword, forced conversion to Islam of the residents of Medina and Mecca. You should know that Muhammad himself personally engaged in 47 battles. Unlike the Lord Jesus Christ who said, if somebody smites you on the right cheek, turn the left cheek to him. The prophet Muhammad personally oversaw the slaughter of hundreds of of people in the Medina marketplace. Now, this is not even a fact disputed at all by the Muslims. It's so well documented. One of Muhammad's earliest biographers, a man by the name of Ibn Ishaq, a devout Muslim, writes, quote, The apostle of Allah, that's what they call Muhammad, the apostle of Allah, may Allah bless him, sat with his companions, and they were brought to him in small groups, Between six and seven hundred in number, and their heads were struck off, though some will put the figure as high as between eight and nine hundred. That's the prophet of Islam. His dying words were, O Lord, perish the Jews and the Christians. Beware, there should be no two faiths in Arabia. Those were his last words. What were Jesus' last words? Among them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And into your hands I commit my spirit. So it's not without cause that Islam calls Muhammad the prophet of the sword. Most important is what does their holy book teach about this? Is the Koran a peaceful book? I don't know if you've ever read it. I've read it. In, in Islam there is no redeemer. In Islam, there is no mediator. In Islam, there are no guarantees of salvation, interestingly. In the Quran, every verse, or one verse in every 7.9 verses, talk about and threaten hell. One verse in every 7.9 in the Quran. Compared with the Old Testament, every one verse... In 722 verses, mention hell, and in the New Testament, one verse in every 120 verses. Also, in the Quran, there are verses called war verses. War verses: 109 verses on war. One out of every 55 verses in the Quran is a war verse. I'm going to. There's so many I can't quote them all to you. I, I just don't have enough time. But the most famous is called the verse of the sword, Ayati Saif. It's Surah chapter nine, verse five that states, quote, "When the forbidden months are past, that's Ramadan, then fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them, and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. Close quote. Now I realize there are many peace loving, moderate Muslims. But it's because they are moderate or liberal. If they're fundamental, it's a different case. The religion and the roots of it are certainly not peaceful. In fact, radical Muslims will cite that very verse as justification to shoot eight people, like they did in Jerusalem this week in a yeshiva, to put on explosives and be a suicide bomber. That's what they'll quote. In fact, do you know that according to Islam, the whole world is divided into two groups of people? Two groups. You can guess which group you're in. One group is called Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam. All those who submit to Allah. Dar al-Islam. The second group, Dar al harb the house of war. So you're in one of those two groups and I doubt you're in the first one. Let's close this off with that last description in verse 12. The prediction is made of Ishmael, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Literally, he shall dwell over against his brethren. Now, we're sort of hard-pressed to divulge exactly the meaning of that phrase. There's one of two ways to look at it. Some commentators believe it, it literally means he will dwell to the east against them. He'll dwell to the east. And that's where they originally settled, the Ishmaelites. They settled to the east of the nation of Israel. But it could also mean he shall dwell in the face of. And both of those are true, by the way. A large population of Uh, Arabic peoples live to the east, but all of them, no matter where they live, I would say live in the face of the nation of Israel. There's a strong dislike, that's very mildly putting it, antipathy for the Jewish nation. There's a book by Brigitte Gabriel. She's Lebanese. She grew up in Lebanon in a Muslim community. This is what she heard growing up. The only time we will have peace in the Middle East is to kill all the Jews and throw them into the sea. She heard that all her life in communities in Lebanon. Children are learning to hate. Children are learning to hate. Uh, Asmala, this is just on Glenn Beck not long ago. Asmala was taught this song in school. This is what she grew up chanting and singing, just like we, our children sing innocent little songs. Arabs are beloved. Jews are dogs. Jews, your blood is kosher to us. Imagine instilling that into the heart and the mind of a little child to be sung as a nursery rhyme in school. The government of Saudi Arabia also supplies curricula to different people throughout the Middle East. And uh, in these books, in the curricula, they are teaching children to be suicide bombers. Here's part of an 8th grade curriculum. Jews and Christians are apes and pigs. Allah has cursed them. It's part of the curriculum in school supplied by Saudi Arabia. Now, maybe you're thinking this at this point. Skip, boy, you are really citing extremists. You are so not going mainstream. You are not at all thinking of what most believe in. You are so going outside the box and quoting only extreme examples. This is what Muslim extremists do. Well, yes and no. No, I'm giving you the origins. It's plain and historical. Anybody can get it. But let me just grant that for a moment. Let's say I've just chosen extremists, especially in the last part of this message, examples. Well, here's a question. Of the percentage of Islam worldwide, let's say it's all peace-loving except just a small percentage. What do you think that percentage is? What would you guess? And you'd have to guess because you don't really know. Others have tried to guess. Maybe some say 10%. That's only now 130 million radical extremists. That's all. Well, let's, let's not go up that high. let 's follow the thinking of Hosni Mubarak of Egypt or um, uh, Musharraf of Pakistan, King Faud of Saudi Arabia, Abdullah of King Jordan, moderates who say, "No, no, no. Of all the Muslims in the world, there are at best one percent who are radical. Only 13 million. Now just think about that. 13 million people that believe the United States is the great Satan and must at all costs be destroyed. 13 million. Think of what just 20 of them were able to do on September 11th. And that frames it. And you're thinking, how is that possible? How can a person think that way? Because there is, in Muslim theology, a very important theological reason that that can happen. That suicide bombing and attacks can happen. It's a theological reason. You want to know what that reason is? I'm going to tell you next week. (laughs) In fact, it's a doctrine called abrogation. And you will never understand the mind of Islam or a radical Muslim until you understand this. But I want to close on a good note because i truly believe that rather than just seeing the threat we should be seeing the opportunity that's what i want to talk more about next week the opportunity i'm going to give you a story that has multiplied several times over but this is just one little snippet of what i mean there's a kuwaiti muslim by the name of interestingly ibrahim abraham very devout muslim Became very wealthy through television production. That was his business. He made uh, several pilgrimages to Mecca, not just one, called the Hajj, the sacred pilgrimage. Made many of them. Started studying the Quran. became very interested in spiritual things. The more he studied the Quran, the more he made pilgrimages, though, he said he lacked peace. He had no peace in his life. No peace. He tried to commit suicide four times. In one episode in his life while he was traveling, I think he was in England in a hotel room. It was during Ramadan, so he was mostly you know, in that hotel room. He couldn't sleep. He had insomnia. And he found in that hotel room a Gideon's Bible. God bless the Gideons for putting those Bibles in the hotel room. So he took out a Bible, and he was reading Psalm 4. In Psalm 4, it says, if you can't sleep, read this Psalm. And so it Says in Psalm 4, God gives His beloved sleep. So he looked up and he said, "If you're the God of this book, give me sleep." He said he slept like a baby all night. Sprawled himself on the bed, went right to sleep. Well, that week, throughout the week, he met a couple Christians, uh, several individuals, Christian women, and and uh, he was resistant to their message. But by the end of that week, he prayed to receive Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, His family rejected him. You can imagine the fallout. He went on to marry a Christian woman. Family disowned him. Recently, just recently, over the telephone, he heard from his father as they had a conversation. And his father by phone said, I know your God is real because for 10 years, all of our plans to harm you have failed. That's one little snippet of many conversions And I've spoken to people in those countries where the people are just fed up because their religion offers them no hope, no forgiveness, no answers. And many of them are turning to faith in Christ. So we're going to talk about that opportunity next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. It is singular. It is unique. It was given by the Lord himself who promised change. From the inside out, not just from the outside, but from the inside, from the heart. Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself plainly, clearly, through the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, because of its uniqueness, its symmetry, the prophecies, the predictions that we marvel at, especially those concerning who Jesus Christ would be and what He would do. Thank you for that salvation. Thank you for your love that includes the forgiveness of all of our debts, all of our past. And through not what we can do or not what we can recite or what we can practice, but by faith in what Jesus Christ has done, can we enter your heaven, your paradise. Strengthen your flock, Lord, for the opportunity that lies ahead. Keep us aware in this culture. Aware of these trends that are going on, not sleeping, but also aware of what you've called us to do and be in this world to all people, and that is to show your love. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for your attention during this latest briefing on Homeland Security, Peace in Times of Terror. Remember, this briefing is not classified and should be shared with everyone. If, while listening to this briefing, you made a decision to find assurance of salvation through a relationship with Jesus Christ, contact our well-trained staff immediately. They will provide you with resources that will equip you to deepen your relationship with the only real source of peace in times of terror. Call toll-free 1-800-922-1888. That's one 1-800- 800 And you can also contact our offices by addressing any correspondence to The Connection, P.O. Box 95707, Albuquerque, New Mexico 87199. Online resources can be found at connectionradio.org and homelandsecurity08.org. Thanks again for your attention, and please plan now to attend next week's briefing at this same time.